Our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to be reading verses 23 and 24. It's our continuation on our series in 1 Thessalonians. We're about to end this letter. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. The Word of God reads, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And that is a reading of the Word of God. So Freddie already, Pastor Freddie already prayed, and I don't want to pray again, but we commit ourselves to the reading into the exposition of the Word of God. From childhood, I've had a recurring nightmare. I don't know if you guys have that, that you have this dream that repeats over and over, not every night, but it's been repeating for a long time since I remember. And I have several of those. One of them is, of course, that I'm start at school getting ready for a test and an engineering of which I for don't remember anything, and that's a nightmare. But this one is, it's interesting because it has two versions. I am in my childhood home, and a thief is about to break in. And in one of the versions, of course, my mom and I are alone. My mom starts screaming. I get really scared, and, uh, and it's a very anxious dream. But in another version of the dream, it happens to be in one of those days that my dad was at home. He was normally not there, but on this occasion, my dad is at home, my, my father used to carry, and he had his gun there, and I'm very peaceful, because dad is there with his gun, and nothing is going to happen to us. That dream reminds me of a story on Pilgrim's Progress, where there is a man named Little Faith, and little faith, a true Christian, is assaulted along the road by three thieves. One of them is guilt, the other one is mistrust, and the other one is faint heart. And as little faith is basically robbed of his jewels or of his money for the road by these three thieves, he remained the rest of his life begging and limping, that's the way Bunyan describes it, and the thieves could not steal his true jewels, the, one, the ones that would make it into heaven. They could not take from him his certificate of birth. So he was saved, and he made it to the celestial city. But he lived all his life doubting his salvation, limping, begging, walking, because guilt mistrust and faint heart had basically robbed him of the joy and assurance of his salvation. And there are Christians, true Christians, who are like little faith. They are saved, but every conversation with them is about, am I saved? And you have to constantly remind them well, salvation is a gift of God. 
It's by grace. It doesn't rely or depend on you. It is entirely up to God. But they walk limping and begging and wondering because of guilt, a faint heart, and mistrust. The text we read this morning actually points us to this reality. Our sanctification will be complete. And in the end, we win. Like watching a, a repeated a movie all, all again. Repeat what? Some people like to do that. I only do it if I forgot the movie, which I have the blessing of forgetting movies. Sometimes I sit down to watch it, and, and almost at the end, I tell my wife, oh, I had seen this one, because I remember that scene, but I had no idea how it ends. So to me, it's new again. But if you remember it, and you know how it ends, the thrill is gone. Well, Christian life is that way. At the end, we win. And this is what this text is about. Paul starts to finish his letter and to wrap it up with a prayer and a benediction. And the prayer and benediction is, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole being, spirit, soul, and body, be kept holy and blameless until the day of Christ. And then Paul captures it with this phrase, He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. In the end, we win. Now, the outline of this prayer, and it's a made outline by me, I'm not saying Paul was thinking about it, but it came to me that in this benediction and prayer, you find the source of sanctification, the finality of, of our sanctification, the blessing of our sanctification, and the assurance that is drawn from our sanctification. Let's go over that benediction and prayer briefly. The source. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What is it to sanctify? To sanctify is to take something from common use, and dedicated to God. In the Old Testament, you would see God in the Torah, in the, in, especially in Leviticus, instruct, giving instructions on how to sanctify vessels, things of common use, which now would be holy because they would be dedicated to God. And that would happen with animals, that would happen with things, with pots, with vessels, with gold, it would also happen with people. To make holy, to sanctify, Roman Catholics use the word to beatify, it is not something that is done to people who led a good exemplary Christian life and then you make them saints. No, it is simply what God does to take people who are common and regular and normal for his use. This room is just a room. Doesn't, there's nothing special about this building. There's nothing, nothing special about this room with chairs. Now, when we gather as a church, when we agree and convene to gather together to hear the Word of God, to worship Him as a corporate community, then the Bible says this becomes the temple of God. Not the walls, but the people gathered. 
and the place of God's dwelling. So it is sanctified. It is set apart for God's use. Now, the source of this sanctification, it's not our self-effort. It is not our labor. It is not our straining over to becoming more holy or more saintly. The source of our sanctification is God himself. The text says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. There's no other way to be made holy than him who is holy, who's separate, who's of another kind and nature of anything we know, to take us for himself and sanctify us. Jean Green writes about this. The prayer anticipates that Christians will be found blameless in their moral conduct at the time of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, since they have partnered their lives according to the will of God. Obviously, he writes, the confidence the apostle had in God's work was beyond the believer's moral weaknesses. And even if you read this letter, you realize that Paul is addressing many of those moral weaknesses and many of those errors and many of those faults in the Thessalonians. But in spite of that, he says, may God sanctify you completely and he will do it because he is faithful. It has nothing to do with what we do. It has everything to do with what God has done in Christ and what he will do because of Christ. That's why the source is the God of peace. Jesus said in John 14, 27, I give you my peace, I leave you with my peace, and I don't give my peace as the world gives it. And how does the world give it? You're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. And I'll continue being nice to you so you're nice to me. But the day I cross you over, then you're mean to me or vice versa. Those who have been in ministry know that perfectly well. People come to church and they swear by you. Until one day, because you're sinful, you cross them. And then they swear at you. You're the most evil person that has ever existed. Human nature. Jesus says, yes, but my peace is not that way. My peace is... One way, unilateral, it goes in one direction from me to you, and it's completely independent from what you would do for me. I don't give it as the world gives it. And this expression, the God of peace, appears 11 times in Scripture. This is like if God wanted us to make sure that his people knows that word, shalom. I am at peace. We are at peace with God through Christ, by faith. Now, in the second place, their sanctification will be final. That's what I call by the finality of sanctification. And by final, I mean complete. The text says, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. Because our salvation is not complete yet. Some people trip with that expression. No, we are not saved yet. But brother, aren't we saved and forever saved? Well, yes, but we are not saved completely yet. Does that mean we can lose salvation? No, it means that 
our salvation today is not complete. Now, I'm not making that up. That's biblical language. We are saved already from the guilt of sin. Romans 3, 23 and 24. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, but all have been justified freely, completely in Christ Jesus. And of course, it implies all who believe. I mean, it goes without saying, it's implicit. So yes, we have been already justified. We have been released from the guilt of sin. We have been released from the condemnation of sin. Romans 5.1, justified by faith, now we have peace with God. We were at war before, we were enemies before, we were aliens and strangers to all the covenants and the promises and the people of God and the blessings of God. But in Christ, who has been made our peace, now we are justified by faith through Christ or in Christ and we have peace with God. No longer condemned by the law. That's why Romans 8, 1 says, there, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But until the day of our redemption, the redemption of our bodies, we are not freed from the presence of sin. We are freed from the power of sin. Paul says in Romans 6, if you have been saved from the guilt and condemnation of sin... You are saved from slavery to sin. No, there are no Christians who are truly Christians who die enslaved to sin. Yes, they may fall, they may go away, they may slip away, they may go in darkness, and even for a long time. But they don't die chained to sin. They don't die shackled to sin. Even like Samson at the end, they are released from their shackles even if it is before their death. Because we are released from the power of sin. Sin no longer have dominion over you, says Paul. Not because of our efforts, but because of the redemption we have in Christ Jesus. However, we still struggle with the presence of sin. We haven't been released from that reality. That even though we want to do good, we don't do the good we want. And even though we hate evil, we'll still do the evil we hate. And that is a struggle of Romans 7. That is a struggle of Galatians 5. Spirit and flesh fighting one another, not doing what we want. Because in our inner man, we rejoice and delight in the law of God. But there's another law in our members. That brings us to the law of sin, to the principle of sin. So we have not been released from the presence of sin until, Romans 8.23, we have the redemption of our bodies. Until our bodies are transformed and changed, and in the presence of God, we will no longer deal with sin. And somebody has wisely said, I believe, if the prospect of not sinning is not attractive to you, in eternity, then perhaps it is because you have not yet known what it is the blessing of having been released from the guilt of sin. If you don't consider not sinning as the greatest joy, 
then maybe you are still under the shackles and shadows of sin. Now, sanctification is both positional and progressive. Sanctification is both definite and gradual. Believers are called saints. Paul writing to the saints of God, or the saints of Christ, or those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We are already saints. We don't need to die and get a statue in a church to become saints. We are already saints. We have already been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We are set apart and sanctified. But it is also a progressive work. Because 2 Corinthians 3 says that the Spirit of God works in us, carving the image of Christ and changing us from glory to glory, even as we are living today. So sanctification is progressive. That is the meaning of the expression that we are being saved. Haven't you read that in 1 Corinthians 15? That we are being saved. What do you mean we're being saved? That, that we are in that process of having our salvation being completed. We are in that process of having to occupy ourselves with our salvation with fear and trembling. We take it seriously. Temptation, we take it seriously. Fleeing from fornication, fleeing from impurity, fleeing from idolatry, we take it seriously. And sometimes it's painful. Why? Because we are in that process of being saved. But then, of course, sanctification has that future aspect of glorification. I said it already, the redemption of our bodies. In the language of Romans, we shall be saved. But aren't we saved? Yes and not yet. Yes, but not yet. Already, but not yet. We shall be saved from the wrath of God at the completion, at the final redemption of our bodies with all of creation. Now, this is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You've read that in Hebrews? If you haven't, I'm telling you. Hebrews 13 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Make no mistakes. Now, when we read that, we tend to run into moralism. Oh, I need to be holy. What shall I do? If I'm a Muslim, I'm going to pray five times a day. I'm going to keep the hundred commandments of Islam. If I'm a Jew, I'm going to keep the, the 634 or 43 commandments of the Torah. If I'm a Christian, uh, yes, I came to the Lord and I raised my hand, but I'm going to say everything the pastor says. And I'm not going to watch TV. I'm not going to wear pants if I'm a woman. I'm not going to wear makeup. And I'm going to have all these rules because I want to be saved. I want to be holy to see the Lord. Nothing to do with that. Nothing whatsoever. The holiness without which we will not see the Lord is that holiness of redemption. Is that holiness of being saved, justified, sanctified, redeemed, cleansed by the complete and sole work of Jesus. And it's not a mixture of what Jesus did and now my effort. It is completely monergistic. If you ever see that word in a book, especially in an old book, monergism. It is all the work of God. There's no mixture. There's no help. There's no cooperation. It is all of grace. And it's not of works. 
at the same time, this is that one day we will have no more sin in the uninterrupted, undistracted, undisturbed presence of Christ. Those are the pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God of Psalm 1611. That is the joy of when I awake in your righteousness, O God, I will be satisfied. We keep looking for satisfaction. More money, another job, another career, another partner, another this, another that, and we never make it to be satisfied. I'm working, now I'm thinking about retirement. You will never be satisfied. Solomon says, looking for satisfaction in this life is like trying to hold wind in your hands. Go ahead. Take some wind in your hands. Cannot take anything. That's exactly looking for satisfaction this side of eternity. In whatever it is you're looking at. Or whomever it is you're looking at outside of God. Well, one day we will awake in righteousness. And we will be completely satisfied in God's presence. That's Psalm 17, 15. That's when the righteous will shine as the stars in the firmament. They will shine in the presence of God, in the kingdom of God. No more tears, no more weeping, no more fears, no more doubts, no more crying, raised in a body in the likeness of Christ. Thirdly, the blessing of our final sanctification is that we will be blameless before him. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you have read or heard about this discussion between being bipartite or partite and tripartite? Have you ever heard about that? No. Wow. Well, it's an old debate, a new debate. Lots of Christians struggle with that or fight over that. Whether we are a trinity in ourselves or only a biunity. Whether we have three parts as believers, spirit, soul, and body, or whether we are only body and soul. And believe it or not, people debate over that. And some people argue, well, just as God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, so we are soul, spirit, and body. And they split between spirit and soul. And they say, the soul, yes, is the immaterial part, but the spirit is that which Christians have where the new life resides. And then, of course, the body, we know what it is. We see it in the mirror daily. Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. It's an expression of parallelism. Paul is simply saying, may God sanctify you completely. And when he says spirit, when he says spirit, soul, and body, my opinion and the opinion of many, he's not giving a new theological statement or term. He's simply expressing, may he sanctify all of who you are, your emotions, your soul, your body, your intellect, your anything and everything you are as a human being. May it be sanctified. Because we are body and soul. We are material and immaterial. 1 Corinthians 7.34 says that we are body and spirit. 
Matthew 12, 26 says that we are heart, soul, spirit, might, and mind. So then we have five. And Deuteronomy 6, 4 says we are heart, soul, and might. Just expressions. Expressions to describe the entirety of our humanity. Again, I quote Gene Green, and he says, or he writes, during that era, there was an ongoing debate concerning whether the human person consisted of two or three parts. A discussion that continues down to our day. We should not, however, simply conclude that Paul was falling on one side or the other of those who embrace a tripartite view. While these terms may describe different aspects of a human's nature or of a person's nature, in the present context, the apostle appeal to God is simply that his sanctification extends to the entirety of their being. Paul's prayer is that God himself would sanctify the Thessalonians so that their whole being, everything they were as humans, would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the blessing of our final sanctification is that. In the end, we will be presented blameless. In the end, at final judgment, if you are in Christ, there's not going to be any shame. There's not going to be any blemish. There's not going to be any, any embarrassment in public. Have you been taught? And I believe you have been taught, because I had been taught that. But in the end, there's going to be this movie. We're going to be sitting in a gigantic theater, and God is going to say, Carl Stern. And Carl is going to turn, he's going to, he's going to stand, I'm sorry, and this movie of Carl's life is going to appear. All those bad things you've done, brother, on the screen. All those evil thoughts on the screen. All those bad deeds on the screen. All those times you, cur- you curse, you swore, you said what you shouldn't have. Oh, but that was when I was an unbeliever. No, no, and as a believer too, on the screen. <laughs> you call that hope? There are some people who manipulate God's people with that. If you want to see me ticked off and angry, bring me that moralism. Do you think Christ died on the cross, came to become flesh, one of us, for 33 and a half years lived a life we could not keep every jot and tittle of the law, then die on the cross and suffer God's damnation? Somebody has said, and he said it, and, I, and, and that person said, and I'm going to say this carefully and respectfully, on the cross, it is, a, it is as if God would have said to his son, God damn you. That's what happened on the cross. When 2 Corinthians 5 says, he became a curse for us. It is no joke. And do you think that happened? So that in the end, there's this movie of all of our faults and failures and blemishes and weaknesses and lack of faith? Of course not. That text says, he will present you blameless. 
Ephesians 5 says, Jesus will take the church, his bride, with all of her imperfections, with all of her failures, with all of these disasters through history that Christians have done, killing Muslims, killing among each other, fighting with each other. All the disasters that Christianity has done and that has been made in the name of Christ. And God will still present his church before him, blameless, spotless, without a wrinkle. And this is the promise Paul makes. Our sins were cast at the bottom of the sea, says the prophet Micah. God will not get a scuba diver suit and go down and show them one last time. Yes, they are at the bottom of the sea, but I want you to, for one last time, see who Edwin Gonzalez really was. That's not my hope. My hope is that Jesus wiped them and obliterated them. And they will no longer brought into the presence of God or anybody else. That's Paul's point. Because the certificate of decrees that was against us, that had all of the inscriptions of our guilt and our sins and our transgressions, was nailed to the cross and washed with the blood of Christ. Because God accepted Jesus' statement at the end on the cross. It is finished. Finished. Transgression has been put to an end. The sins of my people have been wiped. It is finished. And it was proved by the resurrection three days later. The courts of death could not retain him because he didn't die for his sins. He died for the sins of his people. And that is the gospel. And some people say, oh, but that's going to cause people to sin. No, it won't. It won't. I'm ready to put my right hand that if you believe that, the least thing you want is sin. And if you want to sin and will sin because of that, you have no idea of what I just said. Go back to the drawing board. Get on your knees and ask God, please sink it in my head. Until I really learn to hate sin. Because I love Jesus. And that's the blessing. Of our final sanctification. And then what's the assurance of our sanctification? <laughs> Verse 24. He who calls you. Is faithful. He will surely do it. God is faithful. That's the assurance. It's going to happen. Yeah, bro, but you don't know me. You don't know me either. It's going to happen. It's not based on you or on me. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Tell you a story. Laura, my youngest daughter, she's 26 now and pregnant. I'm, I'm accused by the members of my family that she's my favorite, but I don't have favorite children. I love them all. But... Apparently, she has a way into my heart. The other one, too, but he doesn't admit it. But that's another story. Laura had this saying when she was little. And, uh, Dad, are you going to take me to the park? And I would be working on my sermon or doing something. And, uh, and I'd say, yes, sweetie, I will, I will. But, but I'm busy now, but I will, I promise, I will. 
And then she would come the day of the promise and she would just say one word. Daddy, you said it. She would say in Spanish, to the heat. She would not even conjugate the verb right. You said it. And I'm sorry, I'm confessing this sin now, but I couldn't care less where the sermon was. I couldn't care less about Cornerstone or anybody else here. My daughter told me, you said it, and I left anything and went to the park. Because one thing I wanted to do was keep my word to my daughter. When she got married, and the party was going, and you guys were dancing like crazy, many of you are here, and I'm seeing your faces, and I'm not going to look at there, but I know how you were having fun. But the came to an end. It was supposed to stop at midnight, but it kept going until two or three in the morning, because you guys didn't want to stop. But finally it had to stop. And Laura came to me, and she said, Dad, I don't want it to stop. And my heart broke. Because I couldn't keep that one for her. It had to stop. I didn't have the power. Paul says, God is faithful and he will surely do it. Because God is not only faithful, he's almighty. He can do whatever he pleases. I love Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. People say, oh, almighty means he can do all things. No, there are some things God cannot do. Guaranteed. God cannot lie. God cannot tempt anyone to sin. God cannot change. The Bible says that. God cannot go back on his word. He can't. But if he wants to do something, according to his nature, according to his character, according to his word, his covenant and promise, the universe can flatten, hell can break loose, anything can happen. And God's will will be done because he has all power to do whatever he pleases. Paul says this is going to happen because God is faithful, reliable, immutable, and he will surely do it. He is almighty. Nothing can ward off his hand. Nothing can stop him from doing what he's going to do. Not height, nor death, nor things to come, nor things past, nor demons, or angels, or anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So being persuaded of this, Paul wrote, he who began the good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Bet your life it's going to happen. I don't care where you are today. If you belong to him and he began a good work in you, I encourage you to go the easy way because if you try to resist him, no one can resist his will. To just play, play along. Play along with his will. It's going to be easier, happier, smoother, faster because it's going to happen anyways. When I went to, my wife told me, how long is it going to take that you say something? Well, okay, I'm going to say it. 
When I went to Israel three weeks ago, some things really shook me. And I'm not going to tell them all, but I'm going to mention one of the things that shook me to the core. Walking through Jerusalem, seeing all the Arabs there. And by the way, love Arabic people. I don't have a problem with them. I am not a right-wing uh, crazy follower that wants to blow them all because they're all terrorists. No, they're not. Believe me, they're not. We have enough crazies on our side too. But anyways, that's another story. Walking through Jerusalem, packed with Arabs, walking into the Arab neighborhood, the words of Jesus and of the prophets came ringing in my ear. And Jerusalem will be plundered by Gentiles. Where there was Solomon Temple, there's now a dome with a mosque. Where there were sites that were filled with Jewish culture, now they are filled with other cultures. Jerusalem is plundered by Gentiles. And I kept thinking, this thing was said even before Christ by the prophets, and it happened. Well, if that happened, then his promises of salvation, which he always included in those prophecies, will happen too. If that happened, and you can see it today, you can bet your life that he will certainly do it because he is faithful. Now, my conclusion is simple. Nothing can be more devastating anxiety-provoking, vitality-draining, that that incisive question that many Christians have and haunts them, will I make it? Will I make it? Will I be faithful to the end? Answer, yes. That's the answer. I'm not going to scare you with morality. According to the text we read, God will sanctify you completely if you're in Christ. Just make sure you're looking to Christ. Just make sure you're found in Him. And if you are, yes, you will make it to the end. Because Christian fighters are not kamikaze fighters. They took off and they knew they had to basically crash their plane into the enemy's vessels because they didn't have fuel to go back. They knew that. They knew that getting into that plane was saying bye to everybody. I'm going to die in this mission. They either shot me down or I just crashed my plane into the ship. Well, Christianity is not a suicide mission. It is a life mission. Jesus says, I came that you have life and that have it abundantly. He who believes in me, even though he or she is dead, will not perish forever. Secondly, be patient. Because you and I are a work in process. Paul prayed, may God sanctify you completely. So be patient with yourself and with others. <laughs> another, another story. I'm going to describe my sin, not my virtues. Let me clarify that. I was telling Pastor Freddie the other day, Freddie, I have a hard time enduring people who are slack. 
Honestly, I have a hard time with that. Why? Well, because when I was young, I could do a lot of things at the same time. I could preach four or five times a week, study engineering, work. Of course, I was single. It was another kind of life. But I, I, just, I was trained by life to be multitasking to the point that I am unable to do only one thing. My computer has to have ten things open. I work on your sermons with ten other things from Komatsu and more other things. Because I cannot do one thing at a time. It's boring to me. Now, I'm not the paradigm. I'm not the standard. I am not the superman. So when I get upset or disappointed by people who are just slacking, well, I, I cannot make it because I have a runny nose and I cannot make it. Honestly, that thing gets me out. A runny nose. But you go to work every day. Do you stop going to work for a runny nose? Oh, I have, a, I have a little foot pain. Yeah, but you do what you do with your foot pain. Oh, well, but I cannot go to church because the foot pain bothers me. Those things really irritate me. You don't even imagine how much. Because I have my standard, or my wife's standard for the matter, who is the same way. But I was honestly rebuked by that text. Because we're a work in progress. Great, if you're that way, awesome. That doesn't give me any right to be irritable against people who are not that way. We use in Spanish the word ñoño. People who are just like, they're always like, ooh. <coughs> yeah, I'm depressed. Me too. Me too. God knows that I deal with depression. I just chose not to take the pill. But I have fibromyalgia. If I tell you the pains I deal with, even right now as I'm preaching to you, but I'm not going to have any guy prescribe to me pills for fibromyalgia. I'll just do what I have to do and suck it up. That's what I told my son. I have to do it now with my old frame. But that doesn't mean that I'm the standard. If you need to take your depression pills and you need to take your fibromyalgia pills, and you need, then take them. And my call is to remember that you and I are a work in process and in progress. And one day, no more of that when we are in the presence of Christ. And I want to give a word also to the scrupulous. Stop looking at your belly button. Do you want to get depressed? Especially if you're older. Let me give you the prescription. Open your phones and the camera. And turn the thing here to look at you. And do this. Or this. And start looking at you. And observing you. Oh, I'm losing her here. Wow. Oh, I have eye bags. Stop that nonsense. Stop looking at yourself. Run the race looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. When I was six and they removed the training wheels from my bike, I remember to this day, look ahead, look ahead. And I'm there with my bike, look ahead, don't look down. And then when I was 13 and I, I was starting to jog, I had this friend who was a track and field guy. He said, you jog, but it doesn't, look, doesn't show. I know it doesn't show, but I, believe me, I used to jog. And I had this track and field coach. And he would tell me, don't look at your feet, look ahead. Same thing. Stop looking at your belly button, get busy, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. You know why? And I finish with this. Because this benediction is similar to Jude's benediction. Now to him who is able 
to keep you from stumbling. And to him who is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, without blemish, unspotted, and with great joy, no more depression, no more sadness, no more guilt, no more gloom, no more self-persecution, no more of that stuff. You will stand blameless and with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forevermore. Amen. Father, bless your word and use it to encourage your people to lift them up, to prop them up, to look up to you, to hope in you, to make of you our greatest treasure, our greatest joy and satisfaction. Please bless your word. Bless those who are struggling and suffering and discouraged and hopeless. May your spirit remind them that you will sanctify them completely as the God of peace. That their spirits, souls, and bodies, and hearts, and minds will be completely sanctified and held blemish in that day. And that you are faithful and able to do so. Glory be to you, our Father, in Jesus our Lord, through your Spirit. Amen.